had to really start thinking about where homophobia actually comes from, you know, so I did all this research and read a bunch of studies and I found this one study that said that a, a lot of the roots of homophobia for certain people, um, it's jealousy that um, we as queer people are able to subvert a lot of these societal expectations like, you know, buying a house, having kids, getting married and you know all of these steps that you're just assumed that you'll take you know um so that was really literally the only way that I could understand homophobia is because like yeah I get if you're jealous because being queer is the absolute best so like that's the only way that it made sense to me Hi, welcome back Ivory Tower Boiler Room members. It is almost summertime, um, especially the way it's feeling right now on Long Island and I'm sure how Mary's feeling in Jersey. So oh yes. <laughs> I think it's about time for us to start digging into books that really speak to Pride Month. So without mm -hmm. further ado, Mary and I are so excited to be joined with Celia Lasky, who is the author of Under the Rainbow and the upcoming author in a month, you all can buy her book. Um, so happy for you is her next book. So Celia, it's been so wonderful chatting with you on Instagram, but to actually have you here, it's been a journey. Um, yeah. You know, it's felt <laughs> so far away, but we're already here. Yeah, well, thank you, know? you so much for having me. Yeah, so I was talking with Celia before we hit the record button about how exciting it's been teaching your novel. Um, once for a Whitman and his queer influence on mm. other authors course with his idea of multi the multitude. Um, and mm -hmm. then now I've taught it in relationship to the prom in my Broadway musical course. So, wow. yeah, I mean, just- Your students are so lucky they're getting all this different stuff. Well. Thank you. If and you like to put me next for me. <laughs> and like to put me next to Whitman. That's wild. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, so I think just as a starting point, who did you turn to for inspiration when you were coming up with Under the Rainbow? Like, is there certain hmm. media, film, TV, novels? Um, I would say that I looked to um, novels and stories as a genre, um, because that's always what I knew the book was going to be. Um, it was sort of my workaround in that I only knew how to write short stories, but I also wanted to sell a book. So what you generally do is you link the stories together and then a publisher is hopefully willing to publish it. Um, so yeah, I really looked at a lot of novels and stories. I would say that my Bible was probably Olive Kittredge by Elizabeth Strout. She is just, you know, one of my literary gods. I would like to just bow down and kiss her feet. Um, so she was, that book was very, very influential um, with Under the Rainbow. Even the final story, like um, they wanted me to rewrite and sort of make a final story that was more tying everything together, bringing characters back together. Um, so that final story with Gabe 10 years later um, is something that I wrote very late in the editing process. And I was like really lost about 
what I was going to do, how I was going to bring all these characters together. And then I went back and looked at all of Kittredge and the final story had her falling in love. So I was like, well, <laughs> that seems like a great idea. Maybe I'll do that for Gabe. Um, so yeah, that book was huge. Um, another one I used was In Other Rooms, Other Wonders. Have you ever read that book? No, no. Who wrote that? It's, um, I, I knew how to pronounce his name a while ago, but I'm sure I've forgotten at this point. It's Daniel Munudin or something along those lines. He's a Pakistani writer and um, the book is about a wealthy Pakistani landowner and all of the people who work for him on his property and how they're sort of trying to like, you know, climb up the ladder in certain different ways. It's a really fantastic book, but I, <laughs> I also taught it in one of my classes while I was in grad school and my students had a very hard time um, absorbing everything in that book because it's, um, it's definitely a little bit harder to understand if you're not super familiar with like literary works, you know? Um, and then probably the last one that I used was this book called um, The Imperfectionists by Tom Rackman. And that's about a group of people who work at an Italian newspaper. Um, and so all of these books, you know, have different chapters from the different points of view of different characters. And, you know, I really just studied how they really weaved everything together. Um, so it was very helpful to have, you know, those novels in existence. Yeah. What's fascinating to me is none of them are LGBTQ plus yeah. theme. Like, is there, is that um, something that's crossed your mind or is it because you yourself have so much LGBTQ plus referential knowledge that you are already holding in your head, like the Wizard of Oz and being <laughs> a friend of Dorothy and all of the illusions that come up in your novel? Well, you know, at the time that I came up with the concept for this book and started writing it, um, queer lit was not really how it is right now. You know, like there still weren't a ton of queer books that were like super mainstream. Um, so I don't know if there would have even been like a novel and stories that also featured queer characters that I could have used. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure that I had like looked and probably couldn't find any. Um, and you know, it's a really good thing to even wonder if right now, um, you know, in the years since I've published Under the Rainbow, if there are other, um, you know, books that fall into this categorization of novels and stories that are also like queer and trans. Um, I, I would love to know that because I'm thinking of like everything I've read over the past couple of years and nothing's coming to mind. Can, can you two think of anything? Like where it blends novels and stories? Yeah, where it's like novels and stories, but also featuring like queer and trans characters. Yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna think about it as we go. <laughs> right? Something crosses my mind. I mean, you know, we feature a lot of realist novels but i wouldn't say mm -hmm. that it's blending the vignette story element like mm -hmm. you know we've had um pj vernon and um stephen rowley's the gunkle um, mm -hmm. josh sabera um nicholas di messio's burn it all down 
Um, oh, you know which one might be kind of close is um, what was the number? Was it a hundred boyfriends uh, by Brontes? Uh, I can't remember his last name, um, but it was it was a book that basically featured a lot of vignettes about all these different boyfriends that this character had. So that that could probably be considered close. Yeah, I would say like Michael Cunningham comes to my mind mm. with what he does in the hours. Mm. Kind of has a vignette mm -hmm. style. Um, but yeah, okay, well, we'll have to return to that. But I think it is so fast. I just looked it up. It was oh. it was 100 Boyfriends by Brontes Purnell. If anyone yeah. wants mm. to like, no. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, we definitely have to look into it. And I mean, Mary, like when you were reading Under the Rainbow, did the Wizard of Oz just keep coming up to you as an image and a touchstone? It, it did and it didn't because I didn't want the idea of the Wizard of Oz to cloud my perception of the novel. Like I didn't want to keep thinking, oh, where is like the tie between, you know, the Wizard of Oz and Under the Rainbow? You know, I kind of just wanted to let it naturally come up. But I definitely was like, hmm, I'm curious to see if this does come up. And I, oh, I'm going to forget the character's name. I want to say it's Laurel Iv Livingston, Irvingston. Um, she's the one with her son, Dylan, who had passed away in this novel. Oh, who, who is revealed kind Linda. of her kind of is like, oh, so Big Bird is under the rainbow. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, the idea of, you know, all of this is over the rainbow mm -hmm. and Big Bird is under, um, which I really liked that that just tied it so beautifully. And I felt like it was just such a perfect, simple explanation. Like you didn't need anything more. You're like, oh yes, I get it. Just because <laughs> at that point in the novel, you understand so much about the setting and the town that these people live in and their ideologies where, mm -hmm. like I said, you don't need this long lengthy explanation. It's literally a conversation between her and I think Jamal and mm -hmm that's it and then it's like boom that's it and it was like oh okay I get it now. <laughs> yeah oh, thank you you're welcome yeah um I mean how did you come to that understanding Celia that Linda would be the character who like would deliver you know would be talking with Jamal about the idea of your whole title mm. Like, did you always know that Linda would be the character who would think no. about the title? Oh, okay. No, um, I think the title came after I had written all of the stories and we like pulled it out from that conversation. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Um, because I, I don't think, I can't even remember. I think I was calling the book like out of water or something like that for a while, playing with the expression, you know, like a fish out of water and you're in the middle of the country and there's no ocean, et cetera. Um, but my dissertation advisor was the one who helped me come up with the title for the book. And I'm pretty sure that we, we pulled it from a story that I had already written. So yeah, that happens with titles a lot. You have to wait until you written it and then there's a little phrase or or something you know that you can pull from yeah well and what did you get your phd in i got my mfa oh, your um MFA. Okay. yeah and i got it in creative writing with um, a focus on fiction um i got it at the university of mexico which is a tiny little program but it's fully funded um so i was already in 
enough debt from undergrad that I didn't want to do that again. So it was a heavy teaching load, but I mean, I don't know if I could have written this book without having been in a program or that's like what I was working toward. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, were you, so are you still residing in the New Mexico area or the, like where no. in the U.S. are you? I'm in LA now. So after, after that program, um, my wife and I, we had lived in New York for like a decade before we went to New Mexico for my program. And that was three years. And after that, we were like, well, we might as well just keep going West. So we moved to LA afterwards and we've been here for like five years now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Any preference over New York (laughs) or LA? Because that's the common yeah you know against each other I love LA as a place um especially like aesthetically it's very like I love the hills I love the palm trees I love the weather um but it's true what they say about the people in LA it's really a lot harder to find good people (laughs) in LA so I miss that about New York but um, you really could not get me to move back to New York at this point in my life. You know, I'm 37. I feel old as fuck. Are we allowed to swear? Oh, yeah, yeah. you can curse. Yes. Yeah. On this podcast? <laughs> yes. Okay, because I have a mouth like a sailor. I just swear constantly. Um, yeah, you could not get me to move back to New York, especially right now. All of our friends who are still there, they're like, oh, my landlord just raised my rent $700 per month, you know, and there's literally nothing I can do about it. Uh, so yeah, I think I definitely prefer LA as a place, but New York for the people. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice way of framing it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, but you're originally from Kansas. Is that where you? No, I'm from Maine. Maine? Um, oh. but I'm from a very like small sort of rural part of Maine. Um, so I definitely used that, um, those experiences to think about this small Kansas town. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to set it in Kansas because it sort of seemed like it's in the smack dab middle of the country. You know, it can be really representative of any small town in any state. So that's why I chose Kansas. I had originally wanted to set it in the South, but I have like no connection to the South whatsoever. And that's such like a textured specific place that you really have to, you know, know what you're talking about if you're going to set a book there. So I very quickly pivoted and was like, all right, we're going to do Kansas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like it. Cause then it, again, it also ties in with the, you know, Wizard of Oz, the, you know, Dorothy, mm. we're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah. Which I yeah. guess some of these characters would probably feel that way about say LA or New York mm-hmm. where some of our characters are from. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and I know, so for those who watch our video version, um, you know, I'm holding the book up right now, the um, North American edition, but um, I always like to analyze your um, UK edition because it does not have um, the trophy prize of the animal. It actually has the sign Big Burr. And I'm assuming that's because of cultural differences in the UK of hunting like not knowing what that would. Well, it's also, yeah, it's also very normal to um, give books different covers um, for different, you know, countries or territories where they're published. So um, 
yeah, I think part of it was probably, um, you know, wanting the UK audience to understand sort of the setting of this book. And I think um, it's also a, a bit of a more commercial publisher that uh, I'm published with in the UK. So I think they wanted a much more straightforward cover, you know. Um, but yeah, it's really common to have different covers for, you know, a US book versus a UK book. And I do love how like simple this cover is like I love the peachy pink almost like has a brown undertone like ombre like yes I love it and then the kiddos I watch they were because they're vegetarian and like love animals and are like no hunting but (laughs) they saw that and they were like what's wrong with the deer Miss Mary what's wrong and I was like the deer is fine turn the book over if you can't look at it (laughs) but for me the deer is dead and gay (laughs) exactly but in my mind like when I see that I go okay so someone here is a hunter which makes me think this is somewhere southern somewhere you know out in the midwest where you know this happens but then you have the the rainbow flag bow right underneath which we already Mm -hmm. know that this particular mount this deer and the bow are already fixtured in the last chapter Mm -hmm. but as just looking at it with fresh eyes before you even looking at it, you can kind of already tell that this is a story about a queer community Mm -hmm. in a sort of like rural, very conservative Mm. type of town. And that's, again, like I said, that's just looking at the deer with the bow tie. Right. But again, it's simple. And I love that. Like there's no more explanation and it doesn't give too much of the story away. I don't think. Yeah, no, it's funny because when I first saw that cover, um, I had like just an initial gut reaction against the rainbow bow tie. I was like, that's homophobic, (laughs) you know, to like put a rainbow bow tie on it to sort of just like telegraph to everyone that this is a queer book or something. I don't know. There there was something that I just like chafed against about it. Um, But then they like changed the color to a plain black one or like something else. And it just didn't pop the same way. And eventually I really came around to the fact that like, yeah, I probably do want people to like pick up on the rainbow bow tie and know that this is like a queer book. Um, And yeah, eventually I I was very happy with the cover, but yeah, it it took us a number of tries to get to where we ended up. Yeah. Well, and also the antlers are a rainbow arc. Mm. Well, Mm -hmm. but upside down right yeah so yeah yeah you're like it's symbolically showing that this is not somewhere going over it's always Mm. constantly tension there's tension in this Mm. community and I like how the antlers show that tension um especially because the antlers cut through the name of rainbow Mm. yeah right right And, you know, it's funny, my dad is a hunter and that's where I got all of this hunting stuff because it was like a really prominent part of my childhood. Like, I remember we had a Halloween party one year in our neighborhood and it was during hunting season and he had a deer carcass hanging from the swing post and like all the kids were so grossed out and I was so embarrassed that like I was the kid with the dad who's got a fucking deer carcass (laughs) 
hanging from the swing post. Um, so yeah, that's where a lot of that came from. And my dad is like, the deer on this cover isn't the correct kind of deer, you know, that you would find in Kansas. You would only find that deer in like, I think he said like Australia or something. I can't remember, but he was like so upset that the deer wasn't correct. And I told my publisher, I was like, FYI, this is not like the kind of deer that you would find in Kansas. And they were like, yeah, we don't care. <laughs> like, <laughs> it looks good. Like, this is the image that we have. This is the deer we're using. But you tried so, to like, my dad. The analysis, <laughs> at least. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, did you grow up by Stephen King's area of Maine? Is that Banger where he lives? Yeah. So, that's a little bit um, north from where I lived. I was in Brunswick, which is um, like 40 minutes from Portland, if you've ever been to Portland in Maine, which is like a really cute, little city um but you know I just was dying to get out of there growing up uh I didn't know I was queer technically until I was 23 that's when I like had the realization but I always knew that there was like some reason why I was dying to get out of Maine <laughs> so like who in the novel not that Celia you're the replica of this certain character because I don't like to go there with Mm. author affiliation with a character but I'm sure like crafting each of your characters is there a certain character you really saw your own coming out experience your own journey that you felt for mm. the most out of everyone you crafted I don't think there was a character that like mirrored my coming out journey specifically but probably personality wise the character that I'm closest to is Tegan you know, because she's just like, fuck this place, <laughs> fuck these people. I can't stand it here. Like, I don't know why I signed up for this. And it's sort of funny because I was the one who came up with the idea for this book, you know? Um, so I think people tend to think that I must be a very like, let's join hands and all come together type of person, you know, but I'm actually not that way at all. Um, especially over the years, as I've gotten older, I've especially become not that way at all. Um, so yeah, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, would you go to a task force that was doing something like this? And I'm like, hell no, <laughs> you know, I think it would be hell on earth for me. Um, so yeah, it's just a really funny sort of contradiction that I, I came up with the idea for this book that might make you think that um, you know, I'm more politically like, let's all get along than I am. <laughs> yeah. Which I have to say, reading this book, there were definitely quite a few characters, not quite a few. I was, there's one in particular, Christine. Mm. Um, she just made me cringe. Like and every time I was reading her, I was like, oh, and I just want to know. I mean, <laughs> as someone who writes themselves, and has created characters I don't particularly like. There's always one thing where I'm like, okay, like I kind of agree with you, but what was your process writing some of these more conservative characters, these more close-minded characters who, I mean, in my opinion, I was like, I just want to punch you all in the face. <laughs> yeah, well, my process for Christine was, um, you know, I, I had to really start thinking about where homophobia actually comes from, you know, so I did all this research and read a bunch of studies. And I found this one study that said that a, a lot of the roots of homophobia for certain people, um, it's jealousy, that um, 
we as queer people are able to subvert a lot of these societal expectations, like, you know, buying a house, having kids, getting married, and, you know, all of these steps that you're just assumed that you'll take, you know? Um, so that was really literally the only way that I could understand homophobia is because like, yeah, I get if you're jealous because being queer is the absolute best. So like, that's the only way that it made sense to me. So I was like, yeah, I think Christine feels really stifled by, you know, these strictures on her life. And she's really jealous that she doesn't get to um, live a little differently. So yeah, that was my way in for Christine. And then someone like Henry, I just, um, I had this friend growing up and um, her mom came out as a lesbian when we were in high school. And then she came out while she was in college. And then her sister also like came out, I think sometime during or after college. And so it's, you know, this family with these three, three queer women in it. And I just always wondered like what their father in that situation must have felt like. So he was sort of my inspiration for the character of Henry is, you know, just this small town guy who like thinks he's living this pretty normative life. And then all of a sudden is like, whoa, <laughs> maybe things are not what they seem. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I do have a bone to pick with you a little bit. Sorry, mm. Andrew. Um, you, the cat, Harley's cat. Mm. Why did Harley's cat have to die? Sorry, I'm spoiling <laughs> this, but we should already know. Well, Spoiler. You know, looking back on the book from where I am now, there are certain things that I regret and am even like a little embarrassed about in terms of like the choices. Ooh, sorry about that. I'll turn this off. In terms of the choices I made in the book, like looking back, it's probably super uncool that I had like the genderqueer character in the book suffer one of the worst forms of violence that happens in the book, you know? So like, if I was gonna write this book again, I would not do that. I would have someone else's cat die, you know, or I wouldn't <laughs> have a cat die at all. But um, I remember, there were a certain number of characters that I already had in my head when I started writing the book and I was just sort of going along and ticking them off. But then there was definitely a point where I was like, okay, who else is a character? And, you know, I had to figure out um, who these other people were and what was happening to them. So I went and read a lot of personal essays to sort of find inspiration for a lot of these characters. And I read just this absolutely gutting personal essay about um, this woman whose dogs were lost at the same time that she was like going through a terrible miscarriage and she found out like I think it was like almost a year later or something that her neighbor had killed her dogs <laughs> and it was just like it, it was a that piece stayed with me for a really long time I think the first name of the woman who wrote it was Penny something. But anyway, that, that essay just really like tore me up. And it just got me thinking about how one of the worst things that a person could do to you is kill your pet, you know, or like in it, one step removed from kill your pet, you know, like take them to a shelter and, you know, know that they're probably going to be euthanized there. 
Um, so I guess when I was thinking about, you know, what is one of the worst things that the townspeople could do to someone from this task force, that that personal essay really stuck with me um, for that reason. And like I said, if I were writing this book again, I would I would have that happen to a different character because, you know, someone who is genderqueer, they're already dealing with enough terrible things. I, I really don't think I should have put that on that character. But, you know, your education and your awareness and like all this stuff changes so much year by year, especially within the queer community, you know, because so much changes even within like the way we speak about things, the way we think about things. So, um, I think especially when you're writing a queer book, you just have to know that like certain parts of it are gonna appear very different when you look at it after a lot of time has gone by. Yeah, and a lot of my students had said like very glowingly, and I agree that you really look into all the nuances of LGBTQ plus life, but it's not like you're doing it in a way that's didactic or um, just painting this brush of like just trying to include every color in the rainbow just because you feel you have to. So how did you go into that process of, I'm going to have a multidimensional nature of LGBTQ plus characters but I don't mm. want it to come across like I'm just trying to fit, you know, every ingredient into this novel. Right. That's that's really nice to hear that your students didn't think that it came across as didactic because that's another one of those things that like I think even even not with distance from the book, I was worried that certain parts came across as didactic. And I think especially with distance from the book, I'm like, yeah, there are certain parts that are really didactic. And I think that's honestly one of my biggest flaws as a writer in general is that I'm kind of a didactic person and I'm kind of like, that's how I write a lot of the time. That's it, at least where my initial inspiration comes from is from some, uh, sorry, it's from some like didactic place of like, this is what I think and I want you to agree with me. So I'm gonna write this book for that purpose. <laughs> you know, which is like not how I would really like to approach writing books, but it's just how I keep finding myself coming up with ideas for them, you know? Um, so anyway, it's nice that your students don't uh, feel that it was didactic, but I, I feel that certain parts definitely are. Um, and then when it comes to like all of the characters, you know, that represent, um, you know, the full spectrum of being LGBTQ, I would say that came pretty naturally because um, just for myself, you know, a lot of my friends represent all of those different letters of the community. And, you know, I think when you know so many people who, you know, are bi or are like genderqueer or trans, it's, um, it's a lot easier to feel like you can naturally inhabit um, that that viewpoint or, you know, that, that you can credibly create a character um, like that. So yeah, I, I never, I never was going along thinking, oh, well, I have to create, you know, a bi character because that's the B, you know, it was just like, it felt very natural to create these characters because, you know, I think a lot of us in the queer community 
it's just it's just natural that you know a lot of people that are representing those different spectrums. Mm. Yeah, and a lot of discussion that I've been absorbed by, whether it be with my students, whether it be how I approached, especially um, the musical, the prom, and their whole agenda, these Broadway performers to go into a small town in Indiana and have, you know, the lesbian high schooler have her prom with her girlfriend. And they're, you know, coming with blinders, though, because they're going in with the intention of being woke and progressive mm. for publicity's sake. So mm. you really start to peel back the layers of, you know, not everyone has good intention when they're activists. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, like, um, how do they learn from the small town community and vice? They're both sharing. Mm -hmm. um, perspectives and that's like where I see the through line between the musical and your novel um, because they are two separate works but I do think you also really do show that a small town is not without its lessons to teach mm -hmm. acceptance across America mm -hmm. and that we shouldn't be pitting states against each other and I think that's something I really wanted to talk about in this interview because right now we have the don't say mm. gay bill in florida mm -hmm. we keep seeing lgbtq plus books trying to be banned like including those we've interviewed like um lev rosen's camp um comes mm -hmm. to my mind so but again there's also a lot of lgbtq plus and progressive groups fighting in those states so it's not mm -hmm. like the whole state is awash you know? Right. And it's not like the Northeast does not have homophobia because it does. Right. Um, New York City has homophobia. I mean, mm -hmm. um, so like, how do you feel your novel resonates, especially mm. right now with all of those mm. um, political elements? Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a tendency among um, queer people who live in, um, you know, bigger metropolitan areas and coastal areas like, you know, New York and LA, for example, to, to write off these states um, you know, where there are a lot more conservative people, but the reality is, is that queer people live in those states, you know, they, they are there. So we can't just write them off, you know, like, we have to try and fight these things. Um, and, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Under the Rainbow's similarity with the prom, because a lot of people brought that up. And then there was this other 
book that was published, I think maybe like a year before Under the Rainbow called um, Real Queer America. And it was a nonfiction book about, um, you know, how there are just a lot of queer people sprinkled throughout the United States and all of these states where you maybe necessarily wouldn't expect to find them. And a lot of people mentioned the similarity between Real Queer America and my book, um, you know, sort of being like the fictionalized version of Real Queer America. So yeah, I think it's always important to remember that you can't just write a whole state off and you have to remember that there are queer people there being affected by these things. Yeah, yeah. And mm -hmm. representation matters with mm. your novel, especially. Like, that's why I think it's so important that, you know, such a large readership has read Under the Rainbow, who wouldn't oh, is it large? Would you say? I think <laughs> it's so. Large? Yes, yes. In my mind, I, there's like a very tiny little uh, swath of the population that's read the book. And I think my sales would probably also reflect that. But it's nice that you think that a large portion of people had, have read the book. Well, and the way just even teaching it, mm. like I, I think encouraging more educators. So calling all the educators out there mm. in high school and college. It's such a wonderful text to teach because of the vignette style, of mm. the different first person psyches, because mm. they are so different, but also that it's not like everything is solved. Like there is no, you know, fairy tale ending. Like, okay, those who might've had some homophobia have learned their lesson and now they're going to join acceptance across America. Like, mm -hmm. what was that campaign? Because I brought it up in class. Did you draw any inspiration from the hands across America? No, there was actually um, an, an actual group through the HRC. I think it was called Project One America. Um, and I only found out about it after I came up with the idea for the novel. And I was trying to think about logistically how this would actually work, you know, like sending a task force into a homophobic state or region. Um, and that was literally what the HRC did with Project One America. They sent a task force into, um, I think it was like three different Southern states. I can't remember which one specifically. And their purpose was to try to like expand LGBTQ equality um, in these places. And I wish that I had been like a little further along in my career or just a little bit braver at the point that I was researching it, because at that point, I wasn't actually a published no novelist. I was just writing the book and hoping that one day it would be published. So I felt like if I reached out to anyone from that group, that they wouldn't take me very seriously, you know? Um, but I was dying to speak to these people who had been in this task force to find out, you know, what kinds of things they were actually doing, what kind of experiences they had. Um, but I didn't feel that I could. So that's when I just, you know, used my imagination and um, tried to guess what kinds of things they were doing and, you know, how certain situations would have played out. Well, yeah. and the audiobook, because I mm. cannot leave this interview without talking about it, <laughs> is so m masterful. One of the best audiobooks I've ever heard. The, oh, thank you so much. Yes, the performers are incredible. Um, mm. 
soon after your interviews released, I'm releasing the interview with Michael Crouch, who I had the pleasure to talk about. I saw about. that, yes. that you interviewed him. That's so amazing. Yeah, he was wonderful. And um, he loved his experience, he said, with Under the Rainbow. And oh, good. It, I just, for all of you out there, um, it is a full cast. Every vignette is a different actor. I love mm -hmm. this almost radio style performance. Um, mm. It takes me back to when that used to happen um, you know, in like the 1940s, I wasn't alive, but you know, we've heard <laughs> of what happened. Um, but when you all would just tune in and there would be a full performance of mm -hmm. a novel. Um, so I've thought a lot about how your novel would be turned into a mini series for TV, just cause I think it's mm. really powerful as a mini series. I'm not sure Mary too. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I see it as a mini series. Um, That's how I, I see it too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is that something you've been in talks with? Is, you know. Yeah, that we, we've sold the option for that to happen. And I don't know if you guys know what that means, but it basically means that um, for one year, um, this certain company, I'm not sure if I'm like allowed to say, so I, I won't probably say who it is. But, you know, there's this one company that has the option to to turn this into a TV show um, or a movie technically. But I think TV show is where we're going. Um, so they're going to like go around and pitch it and see if we can get anyone to agree to actually make it. Um, but, you know, it's very common with writers that you'll sell the option and then it will expire and nothing will have come from it. So, you know, I try not to get very attached to the idea that the show will actually be made, but we've taken the very first step um, for that to happen. So it, it would be really exciting if that did happen. But yeah, and I remember you had mentioned in your email um, asking about like my involvement with the audiobook, And that was actually really amazing because I was quite involved with choosing all of the voice actors for the book, um, they they were very open to like my suggestions because obviously I had an idea of how all of these people were gonna sound when I was writing them. So, you know, when they would send through a suggestion for a certain character, I'm like, oh no, I pictured like a much deeper voice, you know, more gravelly, whatever. And I would just sort of go poke around on Audible and see if I could find, you know, something that was closer to what I was thinking about. So it was like, very, very collaborative um, and really fun, you know, to be able to, you know, put a literal voice to these voices that I had had in my head. <laughs> so you've listened to your audiobook. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm not surprising. sure. I'm not sure if I've listened to it the whole way through because you reach a, a, a point of fatigue, you know, of like reading your own book and hearing your own book and especially like I was editing under the rainbow for three entire years with my editor so that was even after I sold the book we were editing it for three years so I was especially at like a point of fatigue with the book but um I definitely like went through each story and at least listened to like the first couple pages that the narrator had read um but I was really really pleased with how close we were able to get with each character to what I had envisioned. I think everyone did such a wonderful job. 
Yeah. And um, I mean, I just think it's wonderful that you actually like listen to samples from other actors on Audible because yeah, it's just been such a range. I mean, Mary and I, like we always ask this just because I usually try to listen to the audiobook just so I can have that experience away from Mary's reading of it. And we mm. can bring that up because yeah, some authors choose sam like some authors want to choose the actor and then others want more of a hands-off like they trust the director or you know it's not always that collaborative experience well i'm a control freak so anytime anyone gives anyone anytime anyone gives me the option to take control i'm like yes i would love that thank you (laughs) well did you actually and i couldn't no i was just gonna say i couldn't give them any direction um so like I was able to choose the people that I wanted for the most part, but then when it was time for them to actually read the book, um, I didn't get to weigh in at that point. So um, what I did was I just gave notes um, about each character, the way that I hoped the tone would come across, you know, Um, and I mean, they nailed it based on that. So yeah, I wasn't able to be that involved with like sitting there and giving them direction. Um, But that's probably better, honestly, you know? Well, yeah, I think unless I've only seen it in the case when an author has a performing background and Mm -hmm. they actually want to direct their audiobook. Mm -hmm. um, Or a lot of authors read their own audiobook if you're like well-known enough. Yeah, they they want you to do it. You didn't want to be... (laughs) Avery or like one of the characters um I mean that wasn't presented as an option to me but if it was I definitely would have declined um because I I just feel like a voice actor could do such a better job than me I I don't think I would ever prefer to do one of my own audio books okay so yeah I'm just not reading your audiobook no, I, I'm definitely not of a like performative enough reader or person, um, you know, to do that. Like, I remember I did a reading recently with a group of people and there was this one woman who like, she did her own reading in such like a lovely performative way that I was like so impressed. And I was, I was just like, I have no idea how you did that and how I could ever get to a place of being even close to that. So I'll leave it to the experts. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, well, I know Mary really wanted to ask about, like, the hardest things to write Mm. in your novel. So I'm going to give the floor to you, Mary, for that. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, we've talked about the different points of view and things like that that are happening in this story. Who was the hardest to write? I mean, it's a pretty obvious like, if you had to guess, would you say Christine? Of course. <laughs> yeah, that, that was definitely the, the hardest for sure. Um, and like I said, the way that I conquered that was just to imagine she was really jealous. <laughs> and that's how I got through writing that story. And also to sort of like put humor in there in a way where like Christine herself is not a funny person, but like, you know, when she goes to throw the plate on the floor, and it's like laminate that like doesn't allow the plate to crack. It's like, you can laugh in that moment, maybe a little bit at her, maybe a little bit with her, but like, you know, finding those moments of humor, even within a character that doesn't 
have a sense of humor. So I would say that's another way that I like found a way in. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even like when I just love the 10 years later mm-hmm. um, when she goes to the first ever, um, you know, well, gay owned because it's um, Gabe and Brad spoiling some things, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to get too deep into what happens with them. But she goes yeah. to the coffee shop and it's like her support for the queer community. She's going to buy coffee, but then complain about the price and how long it's taking for a pour over. Like it is kind of hilarious and comedic <laughs> in that way that, mm-hmm. you know, she's trying and you kind of want to give her Oh, and credit. see, in my mind, she just goes because the coffee is actually good. Because she likes you the know? coffee. Because yeah. she likes the coffee. And like, that was one thing that was that really stood out to me is that I actually took a trip to a small Kansas town as research for this book while I was writing it. And the coffee was so goddamn terrible in every single place in this town. It was just like an atrocity, you know, so I really think, and you know, it was a question that like my wife and I had while we were there of like, do these people not know what good coffee tastes like or do they just not care? Or like, what is what is the thing that is making the coffee so bad? You know, because it's, you don't have to have expensive beans to like make a better cup of coffee. So in my head, it was just like a lot of people from Big Burr would eventually learn to appreciate good coffee if it was available to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I really like that, you know, you focus a lot on that element of, like, I know we're using Christine, but there's also, um, I'm trying to remember his name, but the son who like has homophobic, um, gesture. Gabe's son? Billy. Yes. Billy. Yeah. Yeah. Gabe's son, Billy, who, um like is the ringleader of mm-hmm. harassing um, harassing uh, Avery's mother and mm-hmm. um, anyone who is in the Acceptance Across America task force, like mm-hmm. with gestures, but then eventually you do start to understand the psyche behind why he didn't feel accepted by his father. So like, I just think it's so important that you include that they're not a caricature, right? And I think Mm -hmm. they're not just a homophobic person who doesn't Mm -hmm. have, like you're saying, there's a root for any kind of intolerance. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's something in your novel that is such a powerful takeaway Mm -hmm. is find the root. Like, you know, understand that people, um, it's hard to deny someone's existence when they're in front of you. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what Acceptance Across America really teaches this community is, you know, are you not going to talk to the people because they are in Acceptance Across America and they're LGBTQ plus, Um, you know, there's a Mm -hmm. kind of assimilation that starts to happen, which I think is interesting. Well, you know, it's. I, I have Avery make the joke um, in that first chapter that it sort of reminds her of the real world, you know, but like we literally 
watch that happen a lot of the time on the real world where like there are these people on the show who are like I hate gay people and then they get put in a house with a gay person and turns out they kind of they like them quite a bit you know and they like find find some way to get along or or they don't you know but like I did think about like the real world about these strangers put in this house and how a lot of the time what happened is that you know they would learn that they didn't actually hate gay people <laughs> yeah yeah um and if I can Mary mm -hmm. uh, turn to my student corner yes please. I would love that okay, I'm so okay. curious I know and so am I if we I'm can go like I think about teaching yeah. this to the students that I had in my MFA program at the University of New Mexico, and they were actually quite conservative. A lot of my students, like, I think they would have hated <laughs> this book. Oh, so yeah, I'm really curious to think what your, to hear what your students. Yeah, thought. well, I definitely have very open-minded students, Ooh. especially, um, you know, in this self-selecting yes. English department, like yeah. on Long Island, close to New York City. But Again, I mean, mm. I'm sure um, there's going to be, there's always going to be pushback, right? Yeah. Unfortunately. But yeah, I'll read a, through a few of the questions. And if it's okay to like go an extra like 10 minutes with you. Oh, totally. Okay? Yeah. Like past yeah. our six o'clock time. Okay. No, that's fine. Okay. So, and of course, Mary, if you want to riff too, <laughs> when I'm going to. I just want to hear these questions. But, um, Okay, so Brianna asks, were any of the characters from your book based on someone you knew personally? You know, people love to ask that. And I think that they're hoping that there will be an answer of yes, you know? But honestly, I mean, I guess I did mention that I had that friend that I grew up with and, you know, her dad was suddenly like, you know, surrounded by these three queer women in his family. And so he was... Um, like very removed an inspiration for Henry. Um, but I can't say that any character was very typically based on anyone that I knew. I was, I was really creating a lot of these people, you know, sort of starting from an archetype and then trying to make them more specific, you know? Mm. Um, so yeah, th there will be little things here and there, especially that like, my parents, when they read the book, would notice certain things of like, oh, that's from your real life. That's from your real life. Or, you know, like that's someone we know, but it would be just these tiny little glimpses. So yeah, a character as a whole was not based on anyone. Yeah. Okay. My student Lizzie is a big Taylor Swift fan. So she saw- Oh, me too. Obsessed. You are. Yeah. She's Obsessed. Like, I, she's like, I read in Celia's bio that she is a huge- Taylor Swift fan and likes dissecting Taylor Swift lyrics. So she mm. wants to know if you got any inspiration from Taylor Swift songs to write certain. Oh, videos. well, listen, I think that in my future, like writing a novel based on a Taylor Swift song would be like a really cool thing to do. And I really felt like the albums that Taylor put out during the pandemic, like folklore to me, they really felt like novels and stories you know because she even had like the love triangle going on in folklore with like Betty and um the song August like those are all like the same three people she talked a lot about um 
you know, that she had these like recurring characters basically coming up in her songs on folklore. Um, so I would absolutely love to write something fictional based on a Taylor Swift song um, someday, but I didn't do that for Under the Rainbow. And, you know, just while we're on the topic of Taylor Swift, like, I really think she's queer. And, you know, like when I dissect those lyrics, you better believe it's because I'm looking for that queer bait that's been in there. And I'll, I'll, I can find it a lot of places. So just, you know, if anyone ever wants to talk to me about like Taylor Swift being queer and that being reflected in her lyrics, then, you know, get at me. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it for hours. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh yeah. You could do a whole seminar on Taylor Swift. Right. Oh, absolutely. Like hidden yeah. coding and, mm -hmm. oh yeah. Like the song dress it cannot be about a man. It just cannot, you mm. know? There we go. Okay, so everyone out there, <laughs> look at dress, listen to it. We need to yeah. dissect it. Okay, so this yeah, is yeah. something that keeps coming up anytime I teach your novel is mm. they want, my students want you to confirm, is PB Tall Guy, who is on the app, the actual man who is at the motel, who ah, is part of that like yeah. dominant hate mm. crime, blurry mm. boundary, just really awful experience. Yeah, in, in my mind, the man at the motel was not PB Tall Guy. Huh, okay. It was just like a stranger and it's sort of a happenstance thing that, you know, this, this occurs. But I wanted to leave it um, sort of murky you know in the book yeah because i thought it was pb tall guy and he was like that was he had his, been baiting yeah like he was yeah. baiting him to like take out his own internalized homophobia about mm. himself but yeah yeah no i like i wanted to leave that as an option that people could have guessed about but in my own mind i saw this this guy at the motel is just someone completely different yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking, Mary, you should contribute to asking the questions too, even though you didn't have these students. <laughs> you can just say they, no, I don't know any of these the people. <laughs> but um, I was going to say, if you want to read Justin's question, if you have that. Sure. You, so Justin from Andrew's class asks, were there any ways that you wanted to subvert the conservative views on the LGBTQ plus community that you couldn't explore in the book? Hmm. Well, I would say the stories where I did try to sort of subvert what you would guess for a conservative character would be um, Linda and Elsie, um, because, you know, Linda basically starts to feel like an outsider in her own town due to her grief. So that's her way of like connecting with these task force members is, you know, they're outsiders and she all of a sudden started to feel like an outsider. And then with Elsie, you know, um, I was like, well, what if, you know, one of the oldest people in Big Burr, who you would think would be really close-minded is actually one of the few people that's like open to using they, them pronouns and, you know, like better at a lot of this stuff than, you know, someone that you might think would be really good at it. And, you know, Harley and Elsie have this connection based on, you know, mothers and motherhood. So, yeah, I would say that those those moments of connection between characters is how I tried to subvert 
um, you know, the, the conservative viewpoints and what you might expect from these characters. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Joshua asks, did you have any altern alternate endings mm. in mind for your narrative? That's a great question. The book, I had many, many different endings. I think the first ending that I had for the book was Elsie's story and we just sort of end there and it's all sort of, um, you know, a little up in the air. It's more of like an open-ended ending. And then my second ending was Zach's story and we just leave with him um, we end with him just getting the fuck out of Big Burr, <laughs> you know, and that was sort of like a message that I was thinking about conveying at the time is like, if you would like to get out of these places, you should, and you can, you know, uh, but also there are people who want to stay and, you know, like they should and they can. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the ending that we finally landed on, like I said, it was very late in the editing process mm -hmm. and it was because my team really wanted a much more um sort of wrapped up um feeling you know and you know maybe like wrapped up with a bow on it even you know they, they really wanted like this sense of closure and characters coming back together so yeah that's when i went back to olive kittredge and you know came up with this idea of gabe falling in love and that's how i finally wrapped it up yeah, there were many different endings along the way. Great. Yeah. I'm telling you, you're like, <laughs> it's wonderful when you have the author here to answer all the questions, which is why I keep saying to teachers out there, assign these podcast episodes and I can try to mm. get these questions to the authors because I love mm -hmm. like having the, um, like showing that there isn't much distance between author and reader. And mm. yeah, so thank you, Celia, for entertaining <laughs> all of, I'm learning so much just from you exploring this. And I know my students are so happy hearing this. Okay, so Mary's <laughs> gonna ask a question from Emma R. I love this, this is like a radio show. <laughs> we have callers. Right? <laughs> Emma R. <laughs> yes. So Emma R, at, well, she's got a two-parter question here. So she says, firstly, what kind of research did you have to do for the novel? Did you get firsthand experience and actually travel to a town like Big Bird and speak to the people who lived there? Um, yeah, so I touched on that, you know, a little bit earlier that um, I did, um, while I was in my MFA program, I applied for a grant to, you know, drive over and do this because because, you know, I wasn't about to pay my own money to go stay in some crappy little Kansas town. Um, and yeah, my wife and I drove over there and we like stayed in a hotel for, I think we were supposed to stay originally for three nights. And after the second night, we were just like, we can't stay here for one more night. And we just left early. Um, but yeah, um, what was, oh, this is actually really funny. The name of the town is called Liberal and you know like lol it is not a liberal place you know so that's pretty oxymoronic that you know that's where we went but my dissertation advisor had recommended it to me as like a place to check out because he did a lot of driving back and forth across the country and it was apparently a town that he drove through all the time and he was like yeah it seems like kind of the vibe you're going for for bigger so that's how i chose it and like I said, it was definitely a very eye-opening experience because I think I was expecting to find some amount of like 
cute small town culture, you know, like maybe there would be like the bakery that like this, you know, wonderful woman makes all this nice homemade bread and like, you know, this or that. And honestly, there was just zero to me, there was zero, um, like amount of nice or good things in this town. Like we literally drove an hour to a target to get coffee that was potable, <laughs> you know, like, like there was just nothing to me redeeming about this town. And it was just so, so incredibly bleak. Like the best meal we had was at an Applebee's. And like, you realize, you realize while you're there that this is the reason that chains like this exist is because for some people, it is actually the best meal they can find in their town. You know, like we went to like a little independently owned Italian place and it was some of the worst food I've ever had in my life. You know, like, just like everything was bad and terrible. (laughs) So um, yeah, it was actually like a struggle to, to find those redeeming things about fictional Big Bird because, you know, the actual town that we had been to was, was so bleak. Wow. Okay. A lot of my students, the Emmas ask about autobiographical elements and you've touched on that about, Mm -hmm. but they were very, very fascinated. So you've answered anything that has to do with whether characters are related to you, if you knew anyone like them. Um, But I really want Mary to ask Emily's question. Mm. So Emily asked, do you see Under the Rainbow being taught at the secondary level? If a high school teacher were to teach your book, how would you hope they would teach it? Mm. I mean, I think that would be wonderful if a high school teacher wanted to teach this book. Um, You know, I would hope that the teacher had um, the knowledge that they needed, you know, to teach it. um, Because, you know, you don't just want some like cishet person (laughs) teaching this book and, you know, misinterpreting a bunch of different things. Um, But I would assume that if someone was going to teach this book, it would be because they had some amount of connection to it or, you know, familiarity with it. But um, yeah, I mean, I wish I could have read something like this in high school, you know, like my whole life would have been changed if I could have read something like this in high school. And honestly, it's a lot of the reason why I wrote this book is because books like this just did not exist when I was younger. So yeah, that would be awesome. I hope people tell me about it if, if they do. Yeah. Okay. So I only, I have two more questions. Um, no worries. We're wrapping this up. I, um, well, one person is in the audience, so I'm going to wait for her question. Um, and she's actually going to deliver it. Very, it's a surprise. Great. Um, it's a surprise for the audience, not for us. Um, so Gabriella asked a question that I actually really want to have been thinking about every time I pick up your book, which is what would have happened, she asked, if you had actually choose, uh, chose a town that had Mm. been ranked the most homophobic town in America and it wasn't a fictional town like did you think about that I think I would be murdered right now I think I would not be on this podcast existing right now (laughs) like literally yeah um yeah I I think it was very important that 
this town was fictional. And honestly, I was even scared to choose a real state to set it in. You know, like there are people who were really upset that I was portraying Kansas this way, even though Kansas does have a lot of very um, queer phobic laws on the record, you know? Um, but yeah, th there were a lot of people who were very upset that, you know, I chose to set it in Kansas. So, um, and, and I'm actually quite lucky in that I didn't receive nearly the amount of like hate and like trolls that I thought I might for writing a book like this. But yeah, I think if I had set this in an actual, real, very homophobic place, I would, I would be murdered. Wow. <laughs> like, I mean, authors go through this a lot and, you know, I, I know of it happening personally to a lot of people and it's really, really scary when it does happen. So, uh, you know, anything you can do to mitigate that, you do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we want you to be safe, Celia. Yes. I'm glad you're here, <laughs> please. Uh, I don't want you to go anywhere or any author to go anywhere. Um, I mean, we'll see how people feel after this next book that I've written, where I basically take a giant shit on the wedding industry, you know, like maybe people are going to want to murder me then. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's always something that people can, can find to strongly disagree with in your yeah. books. Yeah. And we'll definitely end on so happy for you. So you can pitch it to everyone because oh, sure. I can't wait to get it. Okay. So <laughs> Nicole Arguello, who is one of our interns asked you a really exciting question, but Nicole, I want you to deliver it, please, to Celia, since you're here. Um, so Nicole, the floor is yours. Please um, ask away your question. Hi, so my question was, what made you choose to write this novel through the perspective of multiple characters rather than focusing solely on one perspective? And if you were to choose to elaborate on only one character's story, whose would it be? Mm -hmm. yeah, well, I would say that the reason that I chose, um, you know, to highlight multiple characters is I, I had mentioned this a little bit earlier, that short stories were literally all I knew how to write at the time that I started writing this book. So I didn't think that I would be able to know how to write a book from just one person's perspective for like 250 whole pages. So it was honestly kind of like a technical reason for why, you know, I wrote the book this way. Um, and honestly, after having written now like a couple more books that are just much more straightforward novels with one main character, it's a hell of a lot easier um, to, to do that than to write <laughs> a novel with, you know, 11 different characters that all have to intersect in some way. Like, mm. I thought that I was doing something that was easier, but I was actually doing something that was harder. <laughs> so yeah, that bit me in the butt, that choice. Yeah, to remember all the characters. I, mm -hmm. I just think, wow, to remember, like, they each have to interact at some point or know each other somehow in this town. To and that was like what my team was really pushing was like more interaction between all these characters. And like every time I would go into one story and change one little thing, it was like a ripple effect that like changed all these other things and these other stories. It was like, honestly, when you're playing the game Jenga, you know, with all yeah, those like different yeah. wooden blocks, it was like, you pull out one wooden block and then you've screwed 
everything else and it's going to come tumbling down. So like there was really a point of insanity that I reached a lot of times about trying to keep all of these different timelines straight and all, all of these different characters straight because you really, you pull at one thing and everything else falls apart. So yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, and one character, Nicole asked, if you had to expand on one, would there mm, have been one mm, you would have expanded? Mm. Well, I think I kind of made that choice by um, having the last story circle back with Gabe, you know, um, yeah. because they really did want, you know, that final story that wrapped things up. And I thought about who I could return to um, and have, you know, more to show for them. And it was Gabe. Um, I mean, a lot of people have asked me if I would write a sequel to the book so that we get to see like what's happened to all the characters, you know, at some point in the future. And, you know, that would probably be a fun and wild thing to do at some point. Like Jennifer Egan just released um, this book, The Candy House, which is revisiting a lot of her characters um, from A Visit from the Goon Squad, which is actually a book that also was very helpful for me. Um, and I forgot to mention at the beginning of this interview, but you know, Jennifer Egan just did it. So, you know, it's definitely something I could try at some point. So, you know, well, if it ever seems like enough people want it, then maybe I'll do it. I think you should. I think you should. Mm -hmm. And then maybe Gabe would be your, um, it seems like Gabe could be like the character who took takes us through like if there is one mm. um mm -hmm. like protagonist who would be the first person voice i could see gabe but yeah um okay so celia we can't leave without <laughs> you telling all of the listeners um and those watching how can they well you know they can go to any bookstore or online an independent site amazon barnes and noble but so happy for you. Mm -hmm. How would you describe it for all of us? Okay, let me see if I can remember my elevator pitch. Um, it is about Robin, who's a queer academic um, and loathes weddings, but then her best friend from childhood, Ellie, um, gets engaged and asks her to be the maid of honor for the wedding. And Robin very reluctantly agrees. And, and basically after that, um, Robin starts to see that Ellie is a bride who would kill for the perfect wedding, maybe even literally. Um, so it's sort of like a thriller, dark comedy, satire situation um, that's really, really different from Under the Rainbow. So it'll be very interesting to see if people who liked Under the Rainbow will also like So Happy For You because it's just like such a different vibe. Yeah, well, I can't wait. Um, and the audiobook, I'm sure you've, you know, had your hand in figuring it out. So, um, oh yeah, well, there was just one person to choose for this oh, one. So it, it wasn't like quite as exciting, but I definitely knew the person that I wanted and we got her and, um, I think she's going to do a fantastic job. I think I can probably tell you, um, that it was the person who voiced Tegan. Oh, wonderful. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I know they're not done or anything, but that's who it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. And the release date, when is it coming out? Um, it comes so out June 7th June this 7th. year. Okay. June 7th. Soon. Yeah. So just a Pride month, month away. Mm -hmm. A month. Okay. Yeah. Just a little, a little over a month. Yeah. 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 
Um, well, great. Celia, you are more than welcome. Please come back to the ivory tower boiler room. Oh yeah. Anytime. Just let me know. Well, we'll have to talk about so happy for you. I know you're going to be in a lot of, you know, we're all wind of publicity. Hopefully. I hope it's, a. I mean, hopefully, but you know, (laughs) well, you can come talk to us because we have a special book corner feature. Once everyone Ooh. has met the author, we bring them back on if it's about a new book that they've released. So we're ready to deep dive. So happy for you. Maybe we can do it in the fall. It could be a nice, yeah, like getting ready for Halloween kind of feel <laughs> with yeah. murderous dun, dun, dun. weddings. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much, Celia. And thank you. Mary you. had so much fun here. Yes. Um, and Nicole's surprise appearance. Um, <laughs> it was great. Thank you yeah, so much. And this is a total pleasure. Thank yeah, you so much for reading the book so closely and asking such great questions and, uh, you know, teaching it to your students. That's just all so lovely. So thank you. Oh, well, and bye to everyone out there. Get your hands on Under the Rainbow. Yes. And so happy for you. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia episode. You can watch our video versions of our episodes on patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join at the price of an iced coffee or join as an Ivory Tower member and get some of our exclusive merchandise. I could not be here without an amazing team. So I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director, and I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, who hosts True Crime in Academia. It comes out on Tuesdays. Jaren Usta is our marketing director, and our two interns are Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. And I'm actually here with Mary. So Mary, where can they follow us on social media? You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. On Twitter, we are at Ivory Boiler Room. And then just search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook and you can like our page there. Wonderful. And we, Mary and I and the whole team, hope you all are healthy and happy. And we can't wait to join you and you know, have you all join us in the ivory tower boiler room next week. Bye everyone. Bye.